welcome back to another edition of Tip of the Spear with your Missoula County Commissioners. Josh Slotnick, I'm Winnie Devero, and this is Dave Strohmeyer. And today we have special guests with us, our Director of the Office of Emergency Management, Adrian Beck. And um, just to start off, tell us about the role that OEM has in Missoula County. Yeah, you bet. Well, thanks for having me here today. Um, so Office of Emergency Management really has two divisions. Uh, we operate the 911 Center, which is um, more commonly referred to as a public safety answering point, um, where we employ 911 dispatchers uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, to answer all incoming 911 calls that are generated from within Missoula County, and then directly dispatch the appropriate resources for those calls. And then the other side of uh, OEM, is disaster and emergency services and in that division our role is mandated in uh, Montana Constitution that we, each jurisdiction has to have a designated DES or disaster and emergency services coordinator um, to really be that coordinating entity when something goes boom right and so uh, whether that's a global pandemic a flood or a fire or severe weather um, our role is to be the shepherd and the manager of the emergency operations plans for how we coordinate as a community to resolve those situations. And we're just Missoula County folks. Just Missoula County. And so we actually are um, one of the few uh, county departments that through Interlocal is a city and county department. Um, so we have the role of 911 and disaster and emergency services for both the city of Missoula and the county at large. It's a great thing because for most people, they don't really care where those lines, jurisdictional lines right. are. If they call 911, they want someone right. there. So the word emergency, it's central to all this. I'm bringing that up because in the first big wave of coronavirus, the governor declared an emergency. Yes. Right now, we are obviously in a really big deal. National Guard has literally been called in. Our hospitals are swamped. Our numbers of sick folks are super high, but we're not in a declared emergency. What is, what is that declared emergency, not declared emergency? What does that mean for us here? Sure. So um, when we take kind of COVID out of the picture and we think about just a, a traditional sense of when we would declare an emergency, all the, the saying goes that all uh, emergencies begin and end locally. And so there is kind of this stepping process of how we escalate emergencies um, at the local level, at the state level, and at the federal level. And really it's all tied to, some of it's tied to statutory authority that is granted under an emergency, but for most of it, it's, it's tied to how it gets paid for. And so locally, when something happens, we ask the county commissioners or the mayor to declare an emergency locally, which then allows certain uh, expenses to be incurred um, outside of our normal budget process. And then when we get to a place where we've exhausted our financial resources and or we've exhausted our actual capital resources, people and things, then we ask the state for assistance. And then the state declares an emergency and does the same thing until they've exhausted their resources and then they request the same thing of the president to, to declare a, a an emergency at the federal level. COVID was such a, a strange beast in that uh, we declared a local emergency in both the city and the county at about the same time that the president at the time was declaring a, a national emergency. And at the same time, the state was declaring an emergency, which really was just a way of getting everybody in sync for how we were going to pay for this um, ex extraordinary powers we were going to, um, to use to, to try to contain the virus changes of administration. Um, the state did rescind their emergency declaration in June. Uh, it didn't really affect us too much because we still had a local emergency declaration, but more importantly, we still had a federal overarching emergency declaration that remains in place today. So then the differences between summer of 2020 and summer of 21, can you 
tell us some high-level differences and or maybe even some granular differences and any lessons learned in the summer of 2020 we were still in a we had just come off of the winter where COVID was brand new um, and and everybody kind of had this thought that we might see a decrease in our case numbers as more people went outside and we were able to kind of come out from our caves necessarily but um, we still had a, a state emergency declaration and we were still operating our non-congregate shelter um, we still had a lot of the the public health authorities that enabled us to uh, control the, the occupancy of buildings, uh, mask mandates, those kinds of things. In summer of 2021, um, we were under a new administration at the state and the vaccines were available. Vaccines were yeah. available. And we also um, came off of a legislative session where there were some changes to public health law. So there, a public health authority, excuse me, where uh, we were no longer in a, in a position where we could mandate uh, group sizes and or masks. Over the course of the pandemic, some of the lessons that, that we've learned are that it, it really does take a community to respond to these types of things. And whether that's government telling you what to do or people just doing the right thing, um, that we need to, as, as, as a government trusted entity, we need to be able to talk in a very clear voice and tell people what's going on so that they can make really good decisions. I often times refer to emergency management is not emergency management at all, it's expectations management, right? <laughs> and so if we can, if we can convey to the public what, what they're likely to expect, uh, we find that people make better decisions and, and we really can trust the public to do things if they feel like they have enough information to, to make those decisions. And so I think that when we look at the, the national landscape, the state landscape, and even locally, um, I think that that's the lesson that we need to learn is that we need to, we need to trust the public, but we need to make sure that we're telling them good information. That's great. That's great. So Adrian, from a DES standpoint, from a, um, uh, an incident management standpoint, there have been a few different phases uh, <laughs> yeah. over the past uh, year and a half or so. Maybe talk to us a little bit about standing up that initial incident management team, what its function was, and then uh, you also played a key role in, in vaccinations mm -hmm. and then also related to Operation Shelter. So sure. if you could maybe talk about those three yeah. things. Such versatility. <laughs> well, I'm not joking. I mean, well, it, it really yeah. seems like you've ex expanded the, the kind of definition and scope, really, of what and, and you ran the carnival at the fairgrounds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I was, I was there hucking and... <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, I think that when we take any any emergency, any incident, and we begin to break it down into manageable bites, um, then it, it becomes easier to manage. And I think when COVID first struck, we were all in the same kind of spiral of what's going to happen next, and what's what's the next wave that's going to hit us, what's the next thing that's going to knock us off our feet, and in a, in any kind of incident management, um, you know you you're trying to create that posture of being able to lean in just enough so that you don't fall forward, um, but that when something hits you, it doesn't knock you backwards either. And so our initial efforts were really trying to understand what, what was likely going to happen. And so I think our first kind of aha moment or realization that we were gonna need to amass a, a big um, kind of incident management, incident coordination role was when the governor shut down schools and how central schools are to our everyday life. Um, and when, when parents can't go to work because they have young kids at home now, um, it just has this ripple effect through the community. And, and, and so we started thinking about, well, if kids can't go to school, 
we're going to need a task force that is going to look at how we're going to find childcare resources. And if people can't go to work because they have to stay home with their kids and they don't have a paycheck coming in, um, how are we going to help support them with food security and those kinds of things that um, people are going to need to survive through this, through this ordeal. If individuals get in a situation where they are quarantined or isolated for an extended period of time and they can't leave their home, how are we going to ensure that their kids get fed and that they have the essentials that they need to maintain that isolation? And so kind of that worst case scenario, what if game that we play in emergency management <laughs> is well, if this happens, what are, what are the potential bad things that are going to get us as a society, not necessarily as an individual, what are the things that are going to really cripple our ability as a community? And then trying to problem solve those backwards. And so in the beginning of the pandemic, um, we had a, a very unconventional uh, model for us in that we, we developed all of these COAD, Community Organizations Active in Disaster Task Forces that were hyper-focused on these very specific things that we had identified as going to be problems that were going to have like outflow. Food security and food shelter. Food security and shelter. And one of the areas that um, I think we saw a disproportionate adverse effect was individuals who are homeless. And, um, and those that are kind of on the fringes uh, in our society um, having a lot more problem with, um, with COVID and the outfall from that than, than any other sector of our society. And so we ended up standing up a, a co-ad a co specifically um, focused on homelessness issues and, and how we kind of keep that all together and continue providing those services and don't let that get any worse than it already is. And the vaccination piece, that, that was super important. And, and I, I think you guys played a, just a key role in helping manage what otherwise was just a overwhelming yeah. situation. Yeah, it was quite impressive in that you had this very decentralized effort. We had yeah. multiple healthcare providers, the university and the health department and private for-profit pharmacies, all with a certain amount of vaccines and different personnel issues that they had or didn't have people. Mm -hmm. And it. I remember at the outset feeling like, oh my gosh, this is never going to work smoothly and people aren't going to understand, be able to understand what to do because it's just so decentralized. Yeah. We made this great decision of handing it to Adrian and you were <laughs> able to really herd cats and get this very decentralized, spread out kind of uh, leadership vacuum type situation all aligned and of the events that unfolded over the last couple of years, that's one that I'm absolutely most proud of. We yeah. did it so smoothly. We did it. All we did was you say, did. Adrian, you <laughs> well, so, No, so, and, and that's the, so it wasn't it Adrian. I mean, we had, we had a, a phenomenal team. And one of the things that um, I think I'm most proud of in, in my tenure in emergency management is um, recognizing that as a community, we needed an incident management team. And that requires kind of care and feeding all the time. So that when something like this happens, we're, we're ready and we have individuals that are trained and disciplined in the concepts of incident management and, and ICS, the incident command system. And so when when that was given to us, <laughs> saying, here's a huge mess, let's see if we can figure it out. Um, it was that incident management team and the, the tried and true principles of, of ICS, which is objectives-based management, that really enabled us to get everybody on the same page and have common objectives amongst all of the providers because it was extremely decentralized. It was incredibly confusing to the public. Um, it was incredibly confusing to us um, as far as the information coming from the federal government down to the state, down to the locals, was completely disjointed. Uh, we, were, we were having a really hard time. Um, one of the other kind of tenants of 
incident management or emergency management is planning assumptions, right? So if we can if we can make assumptions about what we should be planning for, then our plan is much better, right? Um, and it was really hard to get a sense of how much vaccine we were going to get, who it was going to go to, and then how ultimately we were going to get it to the to the population that was eligible. And if you remember, that was another huge confusing piece is that we had federal guidelines as to who is eligible, and then we had the state kind of saying, well, no, we don't like that. We're going to do this. <laughs> so it was it was hard for the public to navigate. And so more than anything, we wanted to get all of the providers to have common objectives, to have a common understanding, situational awareness of, of what was going to happen and how it was going to happen. But then the biggest thing was we really wanted the public to understand that as well. Um, again, kind of building in those expectations of here's what you should expect and then um, kind of taking that anxiety out of how they were going to get vaccinated, I think was really helpful. Um, and ultimately, you know, Missoula County continues to have the highest vaccination rate in the state, so which is great. phenomenal. So. so great. You know, I think one of the things that contributed to people's general sense of we don't need to panic here was a person's experience visiting Lucky's or visiting the fairgrounds, which mm -hmm. are these two very public spaces. I got to go to, we got to go to both of them. Mm -hmm. Things were so smooth yeah. and so calm and orderly. There weren't lines, things just flowed. And before you knew it, you were out and all was well. And I remember they're leaving there feeling like, oh, this is gonna work. Yeah. So, the, the thanks, first, Adrian. The first mass clinic that we did at the Adams Center, I had the same anxiety because we'd seen, you know, you know, you turn on the national news and you hear these horror stories yeah. of these 80 year olds that are dropping in line and, and um, you know, waiting days uh, just to try to maintain their spot in line. And we were very intentional saying, we don't want to do that. We don't yeah. want to see that. And, and really trying to process flow the whole thing so that that wouldn't happen. But, you know, in the beginning, we crashed our phone systems, we crashed our internet platforms as to how we were trying to get people to register for their vaccine appointments because it was like getting concert tickets you know, to the Rolling Stones or something, yeah. you know. Well, I think In short order, it smoothed out. Yeah, yeah I mean, it it, and it, it really bespeaks to the, the value of the incident command system and mm -hmm. to the value of our excellent and dedicated uh, staff who've uh, helped us navigate this. We typically get lots of comments from people because things in the public sphere didn't work the way they wanted. Sure. We all got really positive comments. I went to Lucky's and it was great. Yeah. I went to the, the Adams Center, it yeah. totally worked. I went to the, I mean, it was kind of surprising. Like, well, people are reaching out to us to say how good this went, <laughs> which is truly what happened. Not something you guys typically No, hear. no, not, we're not, we don't know how to respond appropriately. <laughs> well, so what other developments in emergency response were you able to take out of this? Or do you think yeah. will outlast the that's a good question. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it, it's cheesy and it's corny to say, but uh, disaster and emergency services uh, coordinators or emergency management generally is all about relationships. And it's all about um, having enough credibility with your relationships that uh, when you ask them to do something, they don't say, well, who are you? You know, they say, oh, okay, yeah. And, and they will come to the table and they will talk. And, and when you say relationships or they, uh, who are you, who are you? Right, I mean, I think that's, that's, the, that's the lesson is that with this global pandemic, it wasn't just one sector of our 
of our kind of relationships capital, right? It wasn't a wildfire where we just need to work with the land management agencies. It was everybody. Mm. So from, you know, the, um, the power companies, the garbage service, all of those types of things, ensuring that everybody knew where to get information, everybody knew kind of how to plug in um, was really important. And I think the biggest thing that we take forward from this, when we think about something going boom, when we think about what the next, what the next emergency is, is really figuring out that that tent, so to speak, needs to be pretty big. And that when we think about, um, when we think about our response, it needs to be a whole community response. It can't just, we can't just focus on, um, the, the entity that, that everybody thinks is in charge because there's so many other things that it touches. Oh, that's so, so good to hear. Right now, I guess, and just focusing a little bit more on COVID before we, we split, and there's a lot more we could talk about yeah. in the world of emergency management yeah. from fires and floods and avalanches, vol yeah. super avalanches. volcanoes. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know, but we don't have but, a plan for that. But, I'm just going to tell you. But if, <laughs> if you had more resources available to you, yeah. Um, for dealing with our current and ongoing COVID uh, uh, pandemic, what what would you do, uh, if anything, different? Yeah, that's a that's that's a really good question. Um, you know, I mean, I think that the best thing that we can do for anything, pandemic or otherwise, is to be resilient and and that does take resources whether it's being resilient to climate change being resilient to flooding fires um and then the pandemic and and so how do how do we kind of instill that resiliency within our our citizens um but then also within our our government institutions so that we can continue to operate whether it's a blue sky day or we have a hurricane <laughs> occurring not in montana probably yeah, but not you yet, know anyway. um and and that kind of ingraining of of a resiliency mindset um does take resources so that when we when we think about going off script from a pandemic but when we think about our our greatest threat in western montana which is wildfires how do we how do we instill that resiliency in our built environment how do we instill that resiliency in in how people think about how they're going to react when there's a fire in their neighborhood that may force them from their home for a for two weeks because if we have a prepared public, then my job's really easy, right? We tend to be called into action when we're unprepared for what's actually happening. And then we have to amass a bunch of resources to deal with. Um, and that's, that's not to say that, you know, anybody that asks for help or needs help in an emergency is, you know, someone who's been asleep at the wheel and hasn't been preparing. But when people can take care of their self, and their their family and their their home. That's one less need that we have to try to try to fill that's in an emergency. Great. I, I bet there's well a lot said. of folks who have more than one roll of toilet paper in their home. Right, right, Yeah. One thing I would just want to commend you guys on, and kind of teaching us all this lesson, is that we can flex beyond what we think our boundaries are. Yeah. You guys, you guys, so did that with things like Operation Shelter, with the vaccine rollout, with getting involved in a giant disease pandemic when typically your office is associated with things like wildfires and that's a lesson we all need to internalize we can go farther than we think we can and we do real community good when we act that way because it's collaborative yeah. it's not necessarily all... horning in on someone else's turf or, exactly. or, or right. flexing beyond yeah. our boundaries um, in a negative way it's, yeah. it's more let's 
it's, well, it seems an, a, a, an a expansive yeah. definition of who we are, not in our little boxes, but right. that we are together. And when we work that way, we do better. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm going to think that, um, you know, my own lessons learned, and, and I think you, the three of you probably saw it on a couple of occasions when you said, Adrian, we'd like you to take on vaccinations. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> um, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in vaccines or, or anything else. Um, or when you say, Adrian, we'd like you to take on Operation Shelter, uh, it's like, I don't, I'm not an expert on what causes homelessness or what the solution should be. But it's, it's, a, it's a process of problem solving. And when you can kind of step back from the root problem and say, okay, let's, let's try to anal analyze this on a broad landscape and then bring in the people who, who are experts in those to inform what we see as the problems, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's how you begin to tackle things outside of your normal comfort zone. <laughs> well, we so appreciate what you've done. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks so much thank for joining so much. us. Yeah, thanks yeah, for, for having coming me. today and for everything. The sun came out. I know. Well. Thank you. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Join us again for a future edition of Tip of the Spear. See you then. Take care. Thanks.